When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together, we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott. I'm Ben. Uh, as always, we are joined by our uh, super producers. We've got uh, Tristan After Dark McNeil. After Dark, I like it. Or uh, the Midnighter. Turbo. Turbo. That's maybe uh, good There one. we go. Yeah. After Dark's not bad. After Dark's not bad. Yeah. Uh, so why have we given him this nickname today? Also, folks, he doesn't really learn about these <laughs> until we're on the air. <laughs> yes, it's already too late at that point, right? Uh huh. All right. Well, I, I guess it's probably a good, uh, good thing in this situation because this. Uh, what we're going to talk about today is uh, a little bit of illegal street racing, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a, a club that I ran across, and I don't even remember what I was searching for. Maybe it was just looking for some photos. I saw some unusual stickers on some cars, and I was curious about what they what they meant. And uh, and it kind of led me down this this uh, this rabbit hole, I guess, this pathway that I I didn't really intend to go down. But it turns out there's a great story here, and I thought it was something that uh, we would share with you today. And Ben, I mean, you you've dug into this just as much as I have now at this point. Um, this this blows my mind. This story. This is incredible. It's hard to believe that something like this really did exist, and it's the the stuff of legends, really. Right, and it's in, it's uh, become enshrined in pop culture as well, which is something that we'll talk about a little bit later in the podcast. Let's set the scene. We are talking about possibly one of the most famous or infamous uh, illegal street racing gangs in world history. Yeah. Uh, they are called, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation here, they are called Mido Naito Kurabu. That's Japanese. <laughs> That's terrible Japanese, uh, but I can do a decent job for you, ladies and gentlemen, in English. This is called the Midnight Club. Yeah, notice the space between mid and night. That's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That'll come up later, but um, this is called the Midnight Club, and the Midnight Club was a uh, very exclusive group, extremely exclusive, as we'll find out. But these guys would spend, and this is all surmised, I guess, because there's a level of secrecy, too, that we'll discuss. Right. But um, it's it's rumored that some of these guys were spending... <clears throat> 
millions of dollars in order to get their cars in the proper shape to, to race in this, uh, I don't even want to call it a series, race in this gang, uh, this midnight gang, this gang that would race um, on the streets of, uh, well, around Tokyo, I should say, because uh, <laughs> they covered great distances, vast distances yeah. uh, in this. And we're talking about cars that were, were doing... Um, should we give it away, Ben? They were, they were, they were driving in excess sometimes of 200 miles per hour on city streets. Right. Yeah. Exactly. City streets, highway. Well, highways that went through Public cities. roads. Public roads. That's probably the best way to say it. And, um, but the thing is, you, you think that would sound like, um, like Wild West type stuff, right? I mean, right. it's chaos. It's gotta be chaos, but that's not the case. These guys were very, um, very strict, very, uh, regimented in the way that they did things and the way that things had to be. And they claim, and this is a funny claim, they claim that, uh, you know, their own personal safety and the public safety was their their most important focus in this whole thing, or, or maybe second behind, you know, top speed, of course. But uh-huh. um, they claim to be very, very safe, and up to a certain point, they really were. Man, you know what? We're probably, like, giving away too much right here at the head. Well, let's let's start this way. Okay. Uh, let's outline their origin story and what differentiates this organization from other street racing groups, of which there there are multiple in Japan, right? Yeah, there are multiple examples. This is not the only street racing group in Japan by a long shot. So the Midnight Club formed in 1987. As Scott mentioned, uh, it is far more regimented. One would say elitist uh, than many other clubs. That's one of the first differences. But one of the other big differences, they sort of cast derision or cast dispersion on drifting and autocross. They were not about that. The only thing this club was about in terms of car performance was maximum velocity. Yeah, so they wanted to sustain top speed for as long as possible. So they needed long, long stretches of road to do that. And it turns out that the uh, area right around Tokyo, um, we'll say that it's between... Uh, let's say, um, I think there's a town called Chiba and there's a town called Yokohama and it goes all, I mean, if you want to just think of that area, you know, with Tokyo in between, uh, Kawasaki's in there somewhere, um, all the highway system around there, but particularly that route, the route that goes around the bay. So that area is, uh, you know, there's a lot of highways. There's long stretches, of course, you know, there's straights, but there are also turns. So it's, um, but it's highway, so there's a lot of gradual turns. It's not, uh, you know, like there's an abrupt right turn in there or anything. So uh, the area is actually not a bad area to do something like this. And they would do it at night when the traffic is extremely light, if, if not non-existent, really, in right. some of the areas. Um, but they would, it was very organized in the way they would start things up. There'd be three cars, you know, two cars that were going to race. Now, they'd start the race somewhere around, you know, like 60, 75 miles an hour, something like that, which sounds already kind of quick, you know, 75. But uh, at the, the sound of a horn from a third car, that's when the race would begin at a designated spot, you know, whether it's a, a, a you know, line right before you get to a, a long straight or whatever. There were, there were starting points, ending points that they knew about, and that was the end of the race. Uh, but the horn honk would signal them to go, and, man, these guys would go. They said that the average racing speed was somewhere around 190 miles an hour. Again, on public roads with other traffic, there's no shutdown of, you know, any, um, you know, other, I <laughs> call it civilian. I don't know, right. other, other traffic, public traffic right. on these roads. So they're, they're having to deal with that. Um, I, I'm sure that they got into, uh, you know, some, you know, complications with, uh, you know, the law trying to catch them. And that's a, that's a good point, Scott. I mean, obviously one of the reasons they're driving so late at night 
is to minimize the chance of encountering pedestrians, civilian drivers, or law enforcement. Yeah, yeah, true. Um, but you know that those encounters happen, but they had an advantage over those guys, and it's that they had faster cars. We'll, we'll discuss that, too. So, man, I think... Um, so we kind of got like the the lay of the land, I guess. You know, right. they're, they're driving fast. Where they're driving around the Tokyo area, yeah. around the bay, um, that they would go long, long distances. They were all about maximum velocity, um, you know, top speed, sustained top speed for for long, long periods yeah. of time. And uh, you know, to be honest, the cars these guys are doing this in. They're, they, we'll talk about them in detail in a moment, but um, they're street cars that were tuned. Right. And this is what a lot of people refer to as the golden era of Japanese tuning. You know, right in the middle of the 1990s, late 1980s, early 1990s. Um, so they're taking cars that, um, you know, weren't that fast, obviously, from the factory, obviously. Right. Uh, you know, they'd even take, uh, you know, Porsches and make, you know, hop them up a little bit so that, uh, you know, they, they were capable of 200 miles an hour. Um, and Ferraris and stuff like that at the beginning. But as this tuning era kind of came to be in the in the 90s, uh, different vehicles like RX-7s and Supras and, uh, you know, well, GTRs, of course, those are high-end cars, Skylines, things like that would, would, would start to enter this mix and, uh, and be accepted by the group. Um, and I guess we've, we've kind of set the stage, I guess, with some, uh, some little details here and there about sure. what, what it was all about, but, um, it's a fascinating group and there's a, there's a lot of secrecy. So to participate in this group, like to, to join the club, it wasn't an easy thing. Cause you might think, well, I got a nice car. It's kind of fast, but uh, but these guys had some standards. They had some some uh, some some certain uh, characteristics that your car had to have and that you had to obey in uh-huh. order to in order to enter this group. So, do you want to talk a little bit about how uh, how people would join? Yeah, sure. Let's do that. All right. So, if you wanted to join this club, if you had heard the rumors, or perhaps one day you were coming home late on traffic. You heard a distant rumble behind you, and then by the time you blinked, you saw taillights, and you wondered, who the heck was that? You would have a lot of work ahead, and some of the first stuff you would have to do is work on your vehicle, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it has to, as Scott said, be capable of racing over 190 miles per hour. <laughs> or 300 kilometers per hour. This is crazy. So you have to, I think the minimum speed that they required, it had to be able to reach 160. Right, or 150 kilometers. Yeah, 160 miles per hour. But they said that the average racing speed was somewhere around 190. And, of course, they pushed that above 200. I mean, like 200, 210 is, yeah. is the range they were getting into. Again, public roads. Can you imagine that? So, yeah, it's it's something that you have to really, really work on a, a stock car, you know, that comes out yeah, of the factory in order to get it to that kind of that kind of, uh, that kind of speed. Well, that kind of power. a golden era of Japanese tuning. So let's say you managed to make it to one meeting okay. because you have dropped thousands of dollars uh, souping up your car. If you are allowed to hang out with them, you are an apprentice for at least a year. A solid year. A solid year, and you have to attend every single meeting for a year to show you're serious about it. Yeah, but that wasn't it, though, right? It, like, if you span the whole apprenticeship year and you make it to every event, every every meeting, every you know everything that they had to do, uh, then you you weren't assured a position, were you? No, you were not. Only 10% of the drivers would qualify for full membership. Oh, man. And that is, okay, and even so, even if you make it into that 10%, you have to prove that you can 
uh, handle that type of speed on public roads and be not a <laughs> again I laugh at this like how can you not be a danger at that speed on public roads but right. you have to prove that you're not a danger to the public and you're not a danger to other racers as well at that speed you have to be able to handle the vehicle um, as a pro would really to become a member and so how would they distinguish between uh, you know like who was an apprentice who was a member who was not in this club at all because people wanted to be in there they wanted they wanted to claim that they were in there you know there's a lot of people that um kind of around the edges of things, the outskirts of things, and they want to pretend as if they're in the group, but they're really oh, not. No, no, no. Yeah, that was a, that was a no-no in this, uh, in this situation. And, you know, a lot of people laugh at, you know, decals, right? When you put right. decals on your car, right. and they claim certain things, like, you know, that you put on a, uh, I don't know, an NHRA sticker on your, on your street car, and then you're trying to drag race people at the light or something. Uh-huh. And people kind of laugh at that, or whatever. Yeah. But these stickers that they distributed to members, and it was a special, Issue sticker, you know, it had a certain look, a certain font, certain, uh, it was made a certain way, it had certain dimensions, all this. Except no substitutes. It had to be their club sticker. If you put that on your vehicle, that meant you were part of something, and it, and it meant, it really did mean something. If you tried to put one of those stickers on yourself, if you had one manufactured, if you created one yourself, and you tried to put that on your vehicle, and you were not a member of the club, uh-huh. there were some dire um, consequences to that action. Right. Your car would be vandalized is the polite, most polite way to say it. Yeah. Some cars were burned to the ground uh, because they were saying, you know, this is an, an elite group. It, it takes a lot to be in this. And we, you know, put everything that we've got into this. You know, this is our this is not only our hobby. This is it's practically our life, really. I mean, a lot of tuners, a lot of master tuners, I guess, there in, in Japan were really into this. And the, the, we'll find out some of the members of these uh, do own tuning shops. And that's kind of their thing. Um, but if you were trying to pretend as if you were in this club and you were not in the club, uh, you would definitely pay the consequences. Right. And this spread uh, their legend even further, right? The idea that essentially the secret society existed mm-hmm. in the heart of Japan uh, and would take vengeance upon those who disobeyed its rules. You know, this, this concept... Uh, I guess the best way I guess the best way to say it is it fascinated the public mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and racing fans in other countries as well began to hear about this, but very few people actually made it to a meeting because it was really you had to know what you were looking for to even make it to a meeting. I mean it was it was a chance occurrence if you even saw these guys on the road or at a at a you know yeah. a bus stop somewhere a um a, a truck stop or whatever um on the side of the road it was like you know they met at certain times at certain places but they they're passing by at 200 miles an hour. Right. And you don't know where they're going to stop and where they're going to start and you know where the meetup is happening. It's all very secretive. The whole thing is based on secrecy. Like they they were such a tight group. They didn't want everybody to be involved. They didn't want, you know, uh, spectators to, uh, to, to, you know, be in the way of things, I guess, maybe. And they maybe. didn't want the cops to know. Yeah, they didn't want the cops to know. So I guess the only way that you would really, um, you know, happen across these guys is just by chance. Or by a careful reading of the newspaper. <laughs> yeah, this is clever. This I like is like this. my favorite part. Yeah, so let's, let's hear uh, the, the way that they would organize these meetups, because even to the members... Uh, they didn't know what was going on going on until, uh, I guess, maybe last minute, right? I mean, right. the week before. To organize a meetup, uh, the, the leader of the team would place an ad in a local newspaper in Tokyo, under which, there, you know, there, there are many. Yeah. Um, and it would be in the classified section. 
and it wouldn't sound like a racing meeting at all. Instead, uh, it's the subject of the ad, the, you know, the ostensible subject of the ad would be something that the group had decided on at their previous meeting. So by word of mouth, essentially. Yeah. So you only know about this if somebody told you or if you were at that meeting. And then the team members could look up the ad and the ad would tell them the location to begin the race at the exact time. So an example of the ad, we have an example of it. What what would it read like, Scott? It would say something like, you know, small handbags at discount prices. For more information, I'm available for meetup at the Daiku parking area on Thursday between 11 p.m. and 2 a.m. Thank you. And so it would have nothing to do with racing, but it would say the name of the place, the day, and the time. And it would be between 11 and, and 2 a.m., and, you know, of course, they're all, they all know exactly when to go. You know, it's 1 a.m. or whatever. It's going to be 1 a.m. at this parking. Or they wouldn't tell them where. Uh, that would be the location that's given to them there. But they hide it in these ads that, you know, pretend to be as if, uh, you know, they're selling discount handbags. Right. Or, you know, something that is uh, just something that no one would ever look twice at unless somebody happened to want a discount handbag, I guess, maybe. And then happen <laughs> to run across, run across this group. But, you know, one thing, Ben... Yeah. We're talking about secrecy. Right. And we didn't mention this in the apprentice thing that um or during during the uh yeah, I guess when you're talking about the apprentice, it was a very limited group. I mean, we're talking like I think at one point membership swelled to something like 75 members. But it was like 30 around there. 30 35 was about the average. Right. For yeah. all the years that this was in existence. And uh, so it remained a tight group. And the secrecy thing, it goes even farther than you might think because they were so careful about not revealing who they are, what they did, or what, you know, the cars were about or anything that they didn't even tell each other what was going on, really. You couldn't ask questions. If you were in the group, it was one of the strict rules. Again, these rules and regulations through this whole series or group or club that you couldn't even tell other members anything about your car. You couldn't tell them how you were funding the vehicle, you know, like how you were able to spend in one what? guy's case, yeah. $2 million yeah. on his car. $2 million on a car to make it go, you know, 220 miles an hour or whatever it was. Um, you couldn't talk about where you worked. You couldn't talk about anything. How you were funding your racing effort or what you did during the day. Yeah. It's just, it, it was just, uh, it was an absolute no-no. It was forbidden to talk about uh, once you were a member of this group. So secrecy was a was a big, big issue with them. They they maintain that uh throughout the whole run of the of the club uh-huh. and uh and it just kind of it, it trickles into every little thing that they do we'll see it you know come up later as well um but, it's a fight club for cars yeah and you might think okay well why don't you know you got to believe that police are just kind of hanging out waiting for these guys to pass that they're going to um you know they're going to just set up traps because they know that in- invariably uh, they're gonna meet. They're gonna meet up with these guys and just be able to 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 nab them. You know, like watch them come by, or you know, you're not faster than the radio, uh-huh. so they're gonna catch them. Right? Didn't quite work out that way for the police because there was something called the gentleman's agreement or, or a gentleman's agreement, and I think we should come back and talk about that after a word from our sponsor. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. 
And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good. And I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. A gentleman's agreement, you say? Yes, yeah, yeah. And this is, uh, in particular... Uh, one that, well, actually, there's two parts to this, and this is a, a bit of a sidebar, but gentlemen's agreement comes up in a lot of different things. It's not just, uh, it's not just the one we're going to talk about today. So, the one that in the one in particular that that hampered the police was something called the 1977 Japanese Automotive Gentlemen's Agreement, and uh, this this is crazy. This limited the police vehicles, right, and supposedly all the uh, the the civilian vehicles, you know, the public vehicles to a top speed of 110 miles per hour or 180 kilometers per hour, which was a legal requirement, or I guess legal, I'm doing the air quote thing, right. uh, set forth by this 1977 Japanese Automotive Gentlemen's Agreement. And so the police are driving around in these cars that can't go above 110 miles per hour. Right. These guys go whizzing past at 200 miles an hour. Nothing really not do. a chance. Yeah, and by the time they get the radio coordination to get them down the road... There's still no chance of catching them. It's I mean, similar they don't know where to, they're going. 
trying to catch up to a motorcycle from a dead stop. Yeah, and it, the thing is, this is this this was set about because of a um, okay, two parts of this, as I said, and I, I'm, I'll try to get through this in in the most clear way possible. But the 1977 agreement was really um, all about the Bosusuku guys. Remember, right. remember the old Bosusuku guys that we talked about the uh, the bike gangs and the uh-huh. I think they had cars also at some point, but it started out with motorcycles. Yeah. Uh, so the idea was that you know the, the Japan Automobile Manufacturers Association or JAMA J A M A uh, suggested that the speed lim- limiting devices be put into all vehicles. We're talking about um, uh, motorcycles and cars, and the top speed was going to be 110 miles per hour because. The Bosasuku guys and girls were causing a lot of chaos on the road. They're causing some havoc because they were uh, they were all about stirring up um, stirring up trouble everywhere. Really, I mean, doesn't the, na- the name? I'll have the name somewhere. I think it means Bosasuku means violent speed tribes, and <laughs> so you can understand that. Well, go back and listen to the car stuff episode on that. We did that yeah. in what January of 2015, I think it was, and the idea was that. You know, if, if everybody did this, if all manufacturers supported this idea, and they did, because they wanted to rid the town of this, you know, this, this, uh, this chaos. So they said, well, let's make it so that no vehicle can go above 110 miles per hour. And, and it actually worked. It worked for a while until, you know, groups like, you know, the bosses, well, the Bosuku guys were able to, to bypass all that stuff with tuning. Mm-hmm. And so were the, the car, um, well, the, the car guys, I guess, the Midnight Club, and and you know other clubs like it. Uh, again, Bosuzuku wasn't just motorcycles; it was also cars. But this gentleman's agreement th- that came about in '77 was not the only one to happen. There was another one that came about in uh, 1989, which is also during the time frame that we're talking about here, because um, this group started in 1987. And in 1989, there was a another agreement in the automotive industry. And uh, this was between all Japanese manufacturers that agreed that no production car would have more than 276 horsepower. Um, so the agreement, well, the agreement ended in 2005, as we'll find out in a moment. But um, the whole idea behind these these gentlemen's agreements yeah. is that it's not really a legally it's not a legally binding thing. It's it's just an agreement, a, a handshake, you know, that that does this. It's like an a, understanding. Yeah, it's it's on your honor. You know, right. it's like a, you know we we say we're not going to do this, and therefore we're not going to do this. And if everybody adheres to that, it, it works. It, it's like um, it just it 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 fulfills itself that way. I mean, that you know, no one it doesn't have to be enforced because everybody just does it, right? So. All these manufacturers had agreed to these speed limiting devices back in the 70s. Now, top horsepower ratings would be 276, and they said, the, you know, the reason was because, you know, this is a country where the maximum speed limit is is 62 miles per hour anywhere in the country. You can't go faster than that. Yeah. So why not just adhere to this, and and that'll work. So all the advertising and everything that you'll see from that era up until about 2005 will say that, you know, if it's a, if it's a high end vehicle, you know, something that's uh, you know GTR or something like that or you know one of the Subaru cars like a WRX uh from prior to 2005, it's going to say it has 276 horsepower. And I've seen other numbers that say 280. So you might see it as high as 280, but right around that area even though it's kind of uh everybody, you know, give a wink and a nod that, you know, we know <laughs> this car has 330 horsepower or whatever it is, but we for advertising purposes say 276 horsepower, 280 horsepower. And that's just kind of the way it went for a long time until Acura, or Honda, I guess, debuted the Legend uh, in, I believe it was, uh, I think it said 2005, right? 
and it was with a 3.5 liter V6 uh, Legend, or I think it was the Acura RL here in the U.S. that had 300 horsepower, and they just outright, you know, just blew it. They just said, you know, that's <laughs> it. We're we're done with this uh, this agreement. And then right after that, it was kind of like the floodgates opened up, and everybody else started, you know, saying, well, you know, well, we've got this NSX also. Well, of course, that's again Acura, but um, it's a bad example there. But um, the RX-7 came out, uh, you know, with Mazda, and they said, well, we've got a 300 horsepower two-seat RX-7 that's coming out. Um, I think there were, you know, of course, NSX came out with a 400-horsepower version. Lexus had a 300-horsepower vehicle soon after. So as soon as they did it, you know, the advertising changed, and it's not so much that the that they really were doing anything different. They yeah. were just finally admitting to the public, we have, we've been building these cars that have more than that, but we've been adhering to this, I guess we'll call it a silly gentleman's agreement uh, up until this point. It wasn't silly to begin with. Uh, but everybody knew how to get around it, and of course the gangs like you know the Midnight Club and the Bosasuku guys, they knew how to get around it early on as well. Uh, but they were the ones flaunting it. It wasn't the manufacturers that were doing it up until uh-huh. 05. Um, these guys were doing it <laughs> right in the middle of the agreement when it was supposed to be limited. And the, and the cops were adhering to it, and that was the problem. They weren't allowed to do anything different. And finally, I think somebody said... We need to we need to get the equipment out on the streets to be able to catch these guys. So they did up right. the police car horsepower and and uh, you know get some hotter vehicles out there so they could catch these guys or at least keep up with them. So it becomes an escalating arms race of sorts. Yeah, and I, I know that's a long description of of it, but you had to understand that like why they felt they could get away with it and why they did get away with it for so long. And and part partially why they were allowed to do so for so long because this could have changed much earlier, but. The fact that the public and law enforcement seemed to acknowledge the Midnight Club's high prioritization of safety, mm-hmm. it, it, like that had an immense influence on the timing of the agreement lapsing. Well, well the public kind of, uh, they, they, uh, they revered them for this. They said, well, you know, this is a, a group that actually, it's not like the Bosuzuku guys that are out there just causing chaos and, you know, like smacking the, the back window of my car as they arrive by at, you know, 120 miles an hour or whatever, uh, you know, with a bat or something. Cause they were doing, they were causing all kinds of trouble, these guys. And they mm-hmm. were just like swarming around vehicles and, you know, nearly causing accidents, if not causing accidents. Um, just general chaos, really. You can imagine. Just, again, listen to that episode; you'll hear it. Mm-hmm. But um, these guys were more about, you know, they're, sure they're they're going dangerously fast, and you got to watch for them, I suppose. But at 190 miles an hour, 200 miles an hour, you don't get much of a chance to react to a car that you see in first in your uh, rearview mirror, and then it's gone. You know, then it's it's beyond your your line of sight in front of you. Um, so you know, if you just maintain what you're doing, they're going to go around you. They they know that these guys are. I guess if I want to say safe, I keep stumbling when I say safe enough. But it, it again, <laughs> 200 miles an hour on a public road—that's it's hard to fathom, but it happens. Um, I, I guess they they trusted them enough to say, yeah, they can they can maneuver these roads safe enough. So I feel safe around those guys and not around this other group. Let's look at some of the specific vehicles too. Sure. Right. Let's get in. Let's dig into the good stuff. So we talked about. Wow, let's let the badger out of the bag here, my friend. We talked about that vehicle that had over $2 million worth of mods yeah. and rebuilding on it. What was the Blackbird? <laughs> the Blackbird? That's what they called it. Yeah, this one was a – it's a Porsche 930. It's a 911 Turbo. Yeah. And 
insanely fast. I mean, insanely fast. And if you want to look it up, I mean, you can you can search for an article called. Um, there's actually a really good article on just this one vehicle and finding this car now. Yeah. Um, it's called "Finding the Midnight Racing 930," and it's in Speed Hunters. If you want to get a, a good rundown of what that car is all about, but um, this is the Yoshida Specials 930, which is a maroon colored 911. Um, again. Rumored that there was, what, $2 million put into this vehicle yeah. uh, in order to make it go faster than another Porsche that had set this record, a speed record called the Yellowbird, I think. And I don't have the details on the Yellowbird right now. That's a different podcast. But <laughs> um, yeah, there were cars like the, you know this, this Blackbird, and there were other cars that had names like that. But you know, we're talking about early on in this series, or, or series, I keep calling it that, but a group, a club, mm-hmm. uh, gang. Uh, there were Porsche 911s, there were Ferraris, other supercars, you know, similar high dollar sports cars like that. But then the tuner cars came in, you know, with, uh, with the lower end vehicles that had just dumped a pile of money into the engine development and, you know, making them lightweight and safer for the ri- driver. But we're talking about, again, like Supras and GTRs and, um, well, Skylines, I think, were in there. RX-7s. Uh, just you name the uh, the Japanese manufacturer. It was in on this uh, in the Midnight Club in some way, really. Um, you know, there was somebody there to tune it and make it better, and and somehow get it up to 160 miles an hour minimum, if not up to 200 and 200 plus. Insane. And again, nobody knows. Nobody except for this guy knows how he was able to channel this much money into this thing. Well, there's other people that know, but they're not talking. See, that's the secret. That's the, the beauty of the secrecy thing is that there are people out there that will do this stuff and they just will keep tight-lipped about it. They don't have to brag about it. They don't have to talk about it. They, they know what they were capable of doing or what they helped them, what they helped him do. Uh-huh. Uh, he himself, I believe, the person that owns this vehicle, I believe, is a, a tuner. So a lot of that work was probably done in-house, but it, it takes a, a lot of work. There's a lot of collaboration that goes on to make a car go this fast. And they also they they would sometimes practice at a, a track, a local track, I think. Mm-hmm. And it was like a super speedway almost. Really, it was a huge bank turn track. And you'll see a lot of photographs of, the, of these midnight vehicles or midnight midnight club vehicles on this uh, the super speedway. And this is owned by a guy that would allow them to go out and, uh, I guess, give it a, give it a little bit of shakedown. Um, yeah. And the the track was called, and I'll I'll probably blow the pronunciation of this, but it's Yatabi. Test track, I think it was, mm-hmm. and this is they would sometimes reach, you know, again almost 200 miles an hour on this track. It's a high banked, you know, steep incline banking on the on the turns, and unfortunately the track was demolished, so it's not around anymore. I think the uh, uh, the guy that owned the track, his name was Masa Saito, and uh, after well, shoot, I'm going to get into the uh, the history of what happened here in a moment, but um, he died later on, I think, in like I want to say in the early 2000s. You know what, Scott? That's this is a perfect time for us to introduce a plot twist hmm. because we've talked a lot about the formation of the club, its rules, its rivalries, mm-hmm. but we have yet to talk about the current state of the Midnight Racing Team, and we will scoot to the edge of your seats, ladies and gentlemen, unless it's going to you know mess up your driving, and we'll be back after a word from our sponsor. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. 
It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good. And I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back, and Ben, you had uh, teased that we were going to hear about the current state of the Midnight Racing Club. Now, what's going on with them right now? Nothing. (laughs) <laughs> they're gone. Well, they're uh, the, the official organization. Yeah. The official secret society no longer exists. And due to the nature of secrecy in this organization, the former members are not going to talk about it. No, but we know what happened. There we is know a, exactly what There happened. is a specific event that happened in 1999, and they immediately disbanded after that. Now, um, this event, this uh, this occurrence, is something that, uh, again, this is part of why people... Um, actually gave them quite a bit of credit. They said, you know, this is uh, this is a group that sticks to what they say. They mean what they say. They say what they mean. And uh, they did. They really did this. So what happened was in 1999, uh, there was a, a group of racers that were out on the street, uh, the Midnight Racing Club. They were as out there. Do. As they do. Yeah. Pursuing their rivalries in a safe 
professional way. Yep, and as we said, you know, the Basuku guys were also out on the roads at that time, and they uh, had a bit of a rivalry going, of course, you know, because... You know, well, who's faster, that kind of right. thing. They're well, causing trouble for each other. The Bosusuku ambushed them. They were waiting for them. Yeah, so they're waiting for these guys to pass because, you know, they're, they're again, they create chaos everywhere they go, these Bosusuku guys. Or at least they did. I don't know if the, the current ones still do. Um, but this is this happened, uh, in again, in 1999. Mm-hmm. It was 3 a.m., around 3 a.m. And the uh, Bosusuku, the bikers, have been drinking. Yeah, so there's a, a drunk bike rider on the road and he's going really fast i mean like 160 miles an hour fast so he's driving recklessly this this uh this biker this basasuku driver uh biker rather and he's driving recklessly down the road and he's scaring all these other drivers you know on the road because he's driving so fast and again you know kind of swerving in and out of his lane and and just causing again just general chaos really and that's a very uh this leads us to a very important part so remember how he said that they would meet up I, I get the feeling, they didn't confirm this, but I get the feeling they had mapped out commonly understood routes. Mm-hmm. But the bikers aren't going to know what those routes are. No. So when a member of the club accepts a challenge from a biker and they're just racing each other on an unplanned route, accidents happen. They deviate from the roads that they usually, or the roads that they were planning to use that evening. Yeah. And they accidentally enter a high traffic area. Yeah, the high traffic area. And remember, they're going 160 miles an hour, approximately 160 at this time. Uh, so the, the Basuka rider loses control, hits a motorist, and causes this huge chain reaction crash. Uh, now the, the motorist crashes into the barricade and he died instantly, unfortunately. Um, the midnight, uh, club racers slowed down, you know, because they saw what was going on. They, they saw the traffic, you know, realized that they need to back down a bit. Um, and the Basasuku rider, of course, he perished as well in this crash because, you know, he caused the initial accident. So two people dead right there. Eight other motorists were hospitalized. Um, they, uh, you know, the, the group itself had a, a policy that they had set in place long before this, like from the very inception of the club back in the, the, the late eighties. Uh, they said that, um, if ever it happened that, you know, if anyone was to die in the existence of the club, whether it's a racer or a motorist or was, you know, indirect or directly the club's fault, this whole group would disband. That would be the end of the whole thing. Immediately and forever. Yeah, and they did that. They did exactly that. So, you know, this was the first instance that it happened, and, of course, it was caused by, you know, it, it doesn't matter that it wasn't caused by a midnight club racer. It was caused by the Basuku guy, you know, initiating this whole thing, and, you know, they, they went into this, this wrong, the wrong area. But they were involved. They were involved. That's right. There's no, I mean, you still can point fingers in this case because, you know, there's still, it's still an illegal street racing gang. So, that you know, there's that aspect to it. Um, but they, uh, they did hold to their word and they disbanded immediately and that was it. They, they just, it's like one of those things they, they never talk about it again. And the members that were in the club then and have been in the club, you know, throughout the history of it from 1987 all the way through was it 1999, I yep. said, uh, they are very tight lipped about it. Now there's a few people that, you know, will say, yeah, I was in the club and, you know, here's my old car and it's still got stickers on it and right. it's verified as an original you know, uh, midnight club racer, uh-huh. but they just won't talk about. It. They won't talk about other members. They just don't feel comfortable sharing a whole lot about their experience in this club. It's it's very secretive, right to the very end, and right to today. Right. We can, however, connect the dots. We can string together some clues. Uh, there's very, very compelling evidence that a lot of founders of famous Japanese tuning shops were members. Yeah, and that just comes from. 
That comes from a couple sources. There are confirmed statements, which are few and far between, but like Scott said, they are out there if you want to check. And then there are histories of cars that have been seen racing during that time period and have the sticker and then exclusively go to one tuning shop or another to get worked on. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it, that you know the, the owners of these tuning shops would be the guys that were in on the ground floor of this, because that was, again, this is the beginning, really, of the Japanese, uh, not the very beginning, but it's really the, the, the heyday, the golden mm-hmm. era of Japanese streetcar tuning. And it makes sense that the guys that were involved in this, you know, the ones that um, they were in on the ground floor, the ones that were the originators of the series and had these extremely expensive cars that had, you know, the, the best of the best at the time. Uh, you know, the, the, they were the, the top end of everything. Um, they were the ones that, you know, still own the vehicles. They still keep them in the back of the shop. They're covered right. under, you know, a tarp maybe, but, or they're, you know, they're on display, but not maybe out in the front window. You know, they're in the, they're in the back tucked in behind, you know, five other cars that, you know, you can't really see it unless you make an attempt to go back and see it. Or they're in like these, uh, wooden crates. Uh, like where they put the Ark of the Covenant at the end of Indiana Jones, spoiler alert, and stamped on it, it says Top Secret Street Racer Car. Spoiler alert. Isn't it like 25 years old at this I point? I don't know. You know, it's people old. get weird about it. <laughs> like, right. is it is it a spoiler to yeah. say that uh, Abraham Lincoln didn't make it all the way through his term? Wait, what? <laughs> ben, how can you ruin something like that? For I'm, you? I'm sorry that I know you were watching... Yeah. Uh, that documentary series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now I know what's going to happen. Great. Now, right, yeah, so it's like when I ruined the Titanic for oh, people. Oh, wh- wait, something happened? With the- no, it's, uh, it's just a romantic comedy. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. All right. So, but, but honestly, it does, it does make sense that, you know, the guys that we know were involved in this were involved in it. I mean, you can put the pieces together right. and assume that, you know, that's, that's accurate. But to get those guys to really... You know, to, to ex- expel, expound on that, you know, that's to say like, you know, here's, here's what happened. Here's the way everything worked. They're not going to do that. They're not going to also talk about, you know, exactly what they had done to their cars and, and what, you know, the other person had done to their vehicles. Even though they saw it, they never really were comfortable discussing that with it's, anybody, with the public. Yeah. And to a degree, I can understand why. It, even just beyond the secrecy, um, the fact that people could feel in any way complicit in injury or death of someone else, mm-hmm. you know, it weighs on you, even if you weren't one of the people in the car. Sure. So I, I can understand a hesitancy to talk about it, even without the secrecy. This would make for a fantastic documentary. And we mentioned at the top of the show that this has become a incredibly influential organization. Mm-hmm. I guess posthumously, right after it's disbanding. Well, sure. It inspired numerous other street racing groups. Yeah, even some called the Midnight Club, uh, which <laughs> which I wouldn't mess with. I yeah. would not either. But you know, so far so good. I guess. I mean, but they're they're I don't want to say cheap imitations, but they're imitations that don't quite live up to. The standards of the original, I guess, and and even even the way it's written is different. There's not there's not the space in between mid and night. It's it's together, uh, but they try to emulate everything about the club and and do things in the same way. But it's just not exactly the same. Well, they might be on a budget, man. <laughs> you know, looking at some of the cars, uh, you know, these Japanese tuner cars yeah. that we see today that are trying to be like these midnight clubs, or even you know they name them other things, but illegal sure. street racing groups. 
you know, incredible vehicle. I don't think they're on a budget at all when you take a look at <laughs> a look at what they've got. I mean, they're they're some of them are pretty wacky. You know what they yeah. do. I mean, a lot of LED lighting and you know, stuff like that. More but, like aesthetic rather than performance. Yeah, and these guys again were just about like just pared down performance. I mean, it was like the cars looked rather plain. If you want to, if you can call them that. I mean, they they had some minor things that you know allowed them to stick to the ground a little bit better. You know, some aero improvements. Uh, but for the most part, they were taking stuff off of their car to make it lighter and faster and, and slicker through the air. Right. So. The cars that you'll see from the original group are a little bit, uh, and I wouldn't, they're not disappointing. I mean, they're really cool cars. It's just, they don't look like the modern cars that, you know, can, are capable of achieving 200 miles an hour. Um, and again, these guys would do this for, you know, 20 minute runs at a time. They're going 200 miles an hour. There's not a lot of, you know, modern day supercars that can do that. So I give them a lot of credit for being able to do what they did when they did it. And, and that's one other, Little, uh, I guess, a facet of the story that I find really fascinating is that you can't, you can't find a lot of footage of these cars on the, on the road. In fact, it's it's almost impossible to find more than just a few seconds. I think there's a um, an, a YouTube video that has maybe 30 seconds of of footage, you know, shot with like a grainy VHS recorder uh, back in the 1980s of of these guys driving on a again a public road at 200 miles an hour. Um, but the reason for this, and I was thinking, like, why are there so few videos and even photos? There's a there's a lot of photos of just the cars themselves, but not of them really in action. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because you know, got to think of the time this was late 1980s, you know, all the way through the 1990s. Not everybody had uh, a way to capture what was happening, you know, on hand like we do now. It doesn't. You don't just pull out the device from your pocket and and shoot a little video. Right. You had to bring out the big VHS camcorder and put it on your shoulder and shoot it. And if you didn't know where these guys were, were going to be or where, you know, when they were going to pass, the opportunity was over. You, you couldn't like, you know, keep it with you and then just jump in the back of the van and then, you know, try to, try to capture this. It wasn't that way. You didn't, you didn't have an iPhone in your pocket. So even photographs, if you were lucky enough to snap some photographs of these things, um, there's a good chance that the people that, you know, were old enough to do that in 1987 and, you know, 1990, there's a good chance that they don't really have a reliable way to put those photos online today. That's true. So there's probably a lot of them that are just kind of hanging out in scrapbooks somewhere. Yeah. Or in, you know, someone's, uh, you know, toolbox in their garage. Uh, some great photographs, but there's just no way to get them online. There is, but they don't know how to do it or, you know, have no way to do that or no interest in doing <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, right. So, uh, but to have that scrapbook. Yeah. I, mean, I know that it's probably again, an over explanation of, of what's going on, but you got to remember, cause I've been trying to, been trying desperately to find, <laughs> to find footage of these guys on the road in, you know, from the 1990s. And it's really, really hard. Um, you can find again, that 30 second clip, I think in this YouTube video, and that's about it. But, um, you can find modern vehicles that are, you know, pushing the limits of 200 miles an hour on the highway. And you'll see, you know, little one-minute videos of acceleration, you know, like from, you know, 62 to 210 or whatever it is, you mm-hmm. know, in a, in, a, in a Corvette that has, you know, 1,200 horsepower. But it's not the same as seeing these guys do their thing, you know, in the middle of Tokyo, in the middle of the night, uh, you know, what, 25 years ago. You're right. And this is where we get to one of the most important parts of today's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, on the off chance that you happen to have any knowledge, first or second hand, of this club, of the Midnight Club, let us know. You can write to us directly. And if, frankly, usually we ask for you to write to us and 
tell us something that you think we should share with your fellow listeners. At this point, Scott, you know, I've been doing a lot of a lot of digging and listening to what you said because there's not a lot of info out there. So at this point, if you want to just give me an inside scoop, <laughs> I promise I won't tell anyone. Yeah, sure. <laughs> no, I okay, I'll probably tell Scott, <laughs> yeah. but I won't tell anybody else. Yeah. Uh, I am just so so baffled by the um the success of their secrecy, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, how it lasted for so long. I mean, it, we're we're now 18 years after the uh the culmination of this of this whole thing. I mean, it, it ended in 1999 and people are still tight-lipped about it. I mean, they know they were in there. Right. They know they're in that group, but they're just not saying anything about it. I mean, little bits and pieces here and there just to get you, you know, mm. just to get you hooked, I guess. And I even saw somewhere there was a, a forum and you'll you'll run across stuff like this if you're digging into the Midnight Club and I encourage you to do it cuz some really interesting stories about individual cars are out there too. Again, that that finding, uh, you know, the Blackbird or the 930, the Porsche 930. That story is pretty fascinating. But you'll you'll you run across things that like people who claim to have an inside scoop on, um, you know, what's going on. And one person in one of these uh, one of these forums that I was in, they claimed to be kind of tight with you know some of the original members and said that. Every year, they still have an annual meetup that, uh, you know, some of the original members come back and meet up in a, in a designated spot and still kind of do this a little bit. I don't know if they make an actual run, but they still have an annual meetup somewhere. Yeah. And again, completely secret. No one really knows about it. But this guy is spilling the beans that, you know, it happens. And I don't even know if you can you trust that, though. I mean, is that somebody just kind of, you know, being Mr. Big Stuff on a forum somewhere? You know, right? Yeah, an internet tough guy. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, like bragging, like you know, you know, like making people assume that he knows more than he really does know. You know, yeah. There's a lot of people that do that kind of thing, and I, I feel like this might be one of those cases. So, I don't, I don't know. I mean, again, you wouldn't know unless you happen across this group of people that gathered, you know, at a at a truck stop or a, mm-hmm. um, you know, just I don't know where they would gather. Really, I mean, it could be anywhere. Uh, it could be a racetrack somewhere. Who knows? Again, secrecy. You might know. And again, if you want to write to me, uh, I promise I won't even show up. <laughs> I'll just read about it. Sure. I just want to get a, I just want to get an inside view of this. Well, man. it's, I mean, to be honest, this is one of the more intriguing stories that we've run across in the last couple of months. I know there, we, you know, we're constantly looking for new topics and things, but. I really dug into this one and I, I, I don't even know if I was able to convey enough, uh, how, how, um, how just intri- how fascinating this series is, or not even I keep calling it a series how how fascinating this gang was, mm-hmm. and uh, and I just want to know more and more about it. But the problem is, there's a limit. There's there's only so much out there, right? And, and beyond traveling to Tokyo and starting to do some some real journalism, some real digging around, some real uh, you know detective work, you're not going to find out a whole lot more. You just have to go with the bits and pieces that are online right now. Spot on, and we hope that you have enjoyed this episode. At least half as much as we've enjoyed trying to dig through what information is out there. Uh, we also hope that this functions as, you know, the entrance to the rabbit hole for you, right? Yeah. The first step. Yep. And it is a rabbit hole because, uh, you'll, you'll start to find little bits and bits and pieces here and there and, uh, and dig around the forums like I did. And then you'll start looking up things like the gentleman's agreement and, mm-hmm. uh, read about, you know, JDM. Culture, I guess, you know, the Japanese domestic market, um, tuning, you know, and, and the golden era of tuning and, you know, what, what that was all about. And it just seems like there's a lot of different, uh, really interesting, uh, side stories to this whole thing. 
It's not yeah. just the gang itself, not just what they did, but everything surrounding it. It's really interesting. And uh, you can find, you know, it might be worth our time to uh, post a, a couple of pictures, maybe, of the Blackbird on our social media, where you can find us at Facebook and Twitter. We are Car Stuff HSW on both of those. And you can write to us directly if you have a lead for me or, you know, I feel like that's a long shot, or you have some thoughts on street racing in general, right? Because this, this is sometimes a, a controversial topic, right? Oh, sure. Uh, so do you think, are you, as we used to always say, are you for it or against it? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, do you participate in street racing? Uh, and, you know, we're not recommending that anybody break any laws. But if you have a story you think your fellow listeners would enjoy, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us directly. We are carstuff at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.